I'll go over some announcements that we have coming up. The main thing that we have that should be on your calendar is that we're going to have the annual congregational meeting, and that's going to be on Sunday, February the 5th, following the uh, morning worship service. <coughs> also in February, I'll be going to... I'll be going to Kiev, and we'll tell you a little bit more about that. But that's uh, I sent an announcement today that everybody should have received about Sergei Yakovchuk. I always have to think about those names. So he's doing really well, uh, considering the circumstance. I mean, spiritually, he's got he's focused. He, uh, you know, he lost, for somebody who lost everything, and and he had built his own house, and uh, had finally finished. It took several years, of course, but he finally finished it about two years ago, and then um, then it burned to the ground, and he lost all his clothes, all his money, uh, everything. He was standing out in about 20-degree weather in his BVDs, or whatever the Russian equivalent, Ukrainian equivalent is, and Jim Meyer's car. <laughs> so, but he, that's what he saved was, and that's great presence of mind. Most people would grab something else and not something that belonged to someone else. So he, he saved Jim's car, and he's our, he's our, Jim's driver over there, drives all of us around, always picks me up at the airport and takes me to the airport and every other person that goes over there. So it's, uh, um, it's it's a good a matter of prayer to pray for him, and it's been a great uh, he's been a great testimony to those around from what Jim Jim's told me to handle handle such loss. So we can continue to pray for uh, pray for him. I think the live streaming is going well from everybody we said. Uh, just a reminder to those who probably aren't live streaming yet because they're having problems. But for those of you who are live streaming already and you have problems, uh, from what I understand, you need to reboot your computer at least once a week, and you need to reboot your uh, your modem at least once a week, and you probably should uh, update your system uh, whenever there are updates available. Uh, some people have problems. I heard somebody recently said, well, I'm having trouble seeing the videos. But it could be because I haven't updated since I got my computer, which was eight years ago. <coughs> Bryce says 90% of the problem is user error. And I know I had that problem. I mean, I'm, I'm getting on something. I was doing something this morning, and all of a sudden I, I, I wouldn't get anything, and I just closed off Firefox and opened it again and updated a couple of things, and everything worked. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone has the opportunity to make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, and if necessary, confess sin, and otherwise um, be in prayer for our class tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege to come together. We're thankful we have this opportunity to do so, to study your word, to be reminded, encouraged, challenged. As scripture says that your word is given, is breathed out by you, uh, that we may be thoroughly equipped. And it teaches us and instructs us in the paths of righteousness. It corrects us and rebukes us. And Father, we pray that we'd be responsive to its teaching, to apply what needs to be applied to be correct that which needs to be corrected, and that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us and we would be responsive to his teaching. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And we're sort of shifting gears. For the last several lessons, we've been talking about the topic of submission, submission of slaves to masters, submission of wives to husbands, and then instruction to husbands. And now we get into a section from 8 to 12 that is something of a summary. And the reality is the principles that are outlined and that are stated, there are five adjectives that are describing Christian character in verse 8. And if those are in place in your Christian life, then it doesn't matter if you're a slave, if you're a wife, if you're a husband, if you're a child, if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're a student, you're going to have no problem being submissive to authority, whatever the authority is that's over you, because that's the essence of of being grace-oriented and understanding these, these authority relationships, because it's grounded on the character uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I started... Now, when we started this and we started talking about uh, Peter's illustration of Christ, starting from verse 21 down to 25, I went over and took the time to talk about uh, Christ in, in um, Philippians chapter 2 and the importance of that in re relation to humility and that humility isn't being a doormat. Humility is being obedient to the authority that's established over you willingly from the heart, not grudgingly, not uh, resistantly, not in terms of what the military used to call silent insolence, but in terms of positive responsiveness. And so that's, that's embedded in all of these characteristics that we're getting to in verses 8 and 9 before it's illustrated by a passage we just finished in, on Tuesday night, in Psalm 34, in fact, we're going to see a certain amount of parallel between what is happening here in 1 Peter and what is going on in David's life in 1 Samuel 21 and 22, which is why as Peter is going to illustrate what he's talking about, he goes to Psalm 34 because it's a parallel uh, situation, parallel circumstances. So just to remind you of the 
context of this epistle, Peter's writing to a community of Jewish background believers who are living in what we would refer to today as central and northern central uh, Turkey. They are believers in Yeshua, in Jesus, as Messiah, as the Jewish Messiah, and they are living in the Jewish diaspora. And in the Jewish uh, diaspora, they are scattered. They've been scattered. The diaspora actually began in 586 B.C. with and is coterminous with the times of the Gentiles, a phrase we're going to see, uh, we have seen already in Luke 21 in the Olivet Discourse, as the Gentile uh, empires dominated Jerusalem and dominated Israel. They live among the diaspora, which is a word that means scattered. They're scattered because of divine discipline, which we studied on Sunday morning in uh, terms of the fifth cycle of discipline. So they're living in a somewhat unsympathetic, non-responsive uh, environment, just as Jews living in the midst of Gentiles. But then they've got this additional problem, and that is that they are Jews who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, that's not quite the hostile thing that it becomes uh, after the end of the first century, and especially after the end of the of the third century. Certainly not the circumstances that you run into, for example, if you're a modern Jew and you trust in Jesus as Messiah. Uh, you may not know this. You may Some of you may be interested. Some of you may not. But just recently, uh, Ariel Ministries, which is Arnold Fruchtenbaum's uh, organization, has published a fascinating biography of Arnold Fruchtenbaum. It's about 350 pages, and I'm about a third of the way through it. And it's really interesting. I found it fascinating, especially the initial part that uh, talks about his family background as well as uh, uh, the impact of the Holocaust on his on his parents and how that brought his father and his mother together and why he was born in Siberia. So that's part of the uh, diaspora. But I've just finished reading the section about when he graduated from high school, right before he was bar mitzvah, he trusted in Jesus as his Messiah. And his father became increasingly hostile to him. The family moved from Brooklyn to uh, California. His father uh, somewhat hoped that that would cause him to change his mind if he got away from those Christian uh, missionaries back in back in Brooklyn. But it didn't because he understood the truth and he understood the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And the last year he was there, his father just uh, talked about a hostile environment. His father refused to talk to him at all. And his mother was about the only one in the family who did talk to him. But there was a silver lining in that cloud. Remember, uh, every every, uh, cloud has a silver lining, but every silver lining has a cloud. Think about it. The silver lining he had was he recognized that his father wouldn't tell him not to go to church, wouldn't tell him not to read his Bible, uh, wasn't arguing with him about anything. And so he, for the first time in three years, had the freedom to go to church and to go to Christian uh, organizations and to fellowship with Christians, to read his Bible. And he was pretty, he was left alone completely. Uh, so that was the positive side. So there are always positive benefits in God's plan, even when we go through go through suffering. But in the early church, there was a lot of hostility if we remember what happened to Paul when he took the gospel to 
the synagogues in Lystra and Iconium and Derby, and they ran him out of town uh, when he went to Thessalonica, and they ran him out of town when he was, um, and that's from the Jewish community, and they would follow him from town to town, uh, causing more and more riots. So there was there was a hostility there. And so Peter is writing to these Jewish background believers to teach them how to deal with the hostility that they would face from the world around them, from the Gentile uh, Greco-Roman culture, as well as from within their own Jewish communities. And they might also, because Christians are sinners too, they might also deal with some sort of hostility or personal or people testing uh, from other believers. We have to understand that the world system surrounds us, so we're always living in a hostile environment. And even that the world system, as we'll understand it in a minute, penetrates our own defenses and often is a dynamic force in our own thinking. More often than we like to think, our rationalizations for our behavior are not only strengthened by our sin nature, but we select the elements within what seems normal to us because it's our culture. In this sense, culture can often refer to those aspects of our belief system that are influenced by our our surroundings, by our community, by our American culture as opposed to a British culture. One of the things that we see in this passage is that Peter is emphasizing the importance of the Christian community as a counterculture to the world's culture. And that is something that is often lost today in American Christianity because part of American cosmic thinking is this idea of rugged individualism. I don't need anybody, just me, my Bible, maybe my mp3 recorder or my computer and god that's all i need and that is just blasphemy because so many passages in the scripture talk about how we are placed in the body of christ for interdependency with other members and we we will uh, see that and that's what peter's talking about here is the importance of what should characterize the church as the Christian community over against what is experienced by those in the world or the cosmic cosmic system. So as we start this, just a reminder of the context, in 1 Peter 2.17, Peter said to honor all people, love the brotherhood, that's going to be reiterated here, fear God and honor the king. And so this is developed then in those four imperatives related to being submissive, how, in fact, to do that. And we've seen this in the last few weeks. Servants, you do it by being submissive to your masters. Wives, by being submissive to your own husbands. Husbands, by dwelling with them with under understanding. So that is how that application comes about. Now, the first thing I want to talk about tonight is that we have to understand this this thing that surrounds us and sometimes penetrates us, and that's the cosmic system. Actually, what we're going to cover briefly here in the introduction, uh, 10 points just as a reminder on the cosmic system, is what I developed for the closing of Tuesday night's class. Because 
David's dealing with the same issues in 1 Samuel 21 and 22 with the hostility of the cosmic system around him. So there's going to be a certain amount of redundancy and repetition between uh, this, the next couple of lessons here in 1 Peter and where we are in 1 Samuel because obviously there is a very close connection uh, textually because we've got Psalm 34 growing out of the circumstances in 1 Samuel 21, and we have Psalm 34 quoted here as an illustration of, of how uh, Christians should, should be responsive. So understanding the cosmic system, first of all, we all live within this cosmic system, but the foundation for understanding what the Bible teaches about the cosmic system, and that is cosmic with a K, not cosmic with a C. I remember when I was in about the ninth or 10th grade, some uh, pastoral intern from Dallas Seminary came to uh, the church where I grew up and was teaching about the cosmic system. And what he said was so far over my head. But of course, I'm talking about Charlie Clough when he was... uh, Uh, probably in his third year at Dallas Seminary. Uh, So I didn't understand that it was cosmic with a K. And what he was teaching was straight out of Chafer's systematic theology, but uh, it was, I never heard it quite addressed that way. So it's cosmic with a K. First of all, all human beings are fallen sinners. From Adam's sin, and in Adam's fall we sinned all, so we're all fallen sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is that iniquity that has led us astray. We are all, all corrupt. So the starting point is the human thinking is corrupted by sin. So that in terms of cor- that corruption, we are, as Paul puts it in Romans 18 to 20, we are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And what happens when you tr- suppress the truth, and I'm going to develop some more on this, but when you suppress the truth, the more you suppress truth, the less you're able to recognize the truth. And the less you're able to recognize the truth, the less you're able to evaluate what is true and determine the difference between truth and error. Because the more we get away from truth, the more our framework for evaluating what is right and what is wrong changes until we reach that point where God, uh, God indicted Israel in the Old Testament, where he said that they were uh, calling evil good and good evil. And that is why we have a lot of the problems in our culture today. We have rejected as a nation the Judeo-Christian heritage that defines right and wrong. And as a result of that, because the community of our national culture has moved away from a biblical standard of right and wrong, they're redefining what is right or wrong. And as a result of that, they're losing the ability to determine what is right or wrong, and everything becomes relative, and we are galloping towards the the uh, motto of the judges period that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
because there was no king in Israel. And what that meant wasn't they didn't have a monarch, a human monarch, but that God wasn't, they weren't allowing God to function as the theocratic king of the nation at that time. So because human beings are fallen sinners, we reconstruct reality according to our opposition to truth. That reconstruction of reality is what we mean by the cosmic system. So the second point is that the cosmic system is an organized system of thinking that is in opposition to God. It is juxtaposed in the scripture to everything that God teaches. Uh, The Greek word cosmos has a root meaning that uh, means adornment or order or arrangement. And as such, one meaning has to do with the arrangement of human thinking or what we call human viewpoint thinking. The Greek word itself can refer to the ordered physical world or universe. It can also refer to the uh, uh, the inhabitants of the world, and it can also refer to the and describe the thinking of the world. That goes back to uh, classic fifth century fifth uh, century Greek and philosophical Greek. So it can refer to the spatially ordered universe or to the ordered earth or to the inhabitants of the earth, but it also refers to the structured thinking. Now, the Bible talks about God's viewpoint. There's a way, the psalmist says, there's a way that appears right to man. You look at the... You look at the wisdom literature in Psalms and Proverbs. There's a way, there's a right way. And everything else is the wrong way. And Jesus referred to this, and he talks about broad is the path to destruction, narrow is the path to life. There are many different paths on the wrong way. You have philosophical paths, you have religious paths, you have irrational paths, mystic paths, all kinds of different paths, because everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, so it just multiplies over time. But that's always juxtaposed in Scripture to God's absolute. There's one way of thinking that's God's way of thinking, and that's juxtaposed to all human viewpoint. So human viewpoint becomes a word that we use to describe this. But we could also use other words such as uh, uh, Satan's viewpoint or the world system, um, pagan viewpoint. All of those would basically represent uh, the same thing. The head of this type of thinking and the one who originated is Satan. That's why he is given these kinds of titles. Second Corinthians 4, 4 says he's the God of this age. The Greek word there for age is ionos. It's not the word cosmos, but it has to do with the time period in which this philosophy operates. And so the Germans, who are so philosophical, developed a term for this called the Zeitgeist, which means the spirit of the times, the spirit of the times. So he's the God of this age, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and John 16, 11, he says, he's, Jesus said he's the ruler of this world. He's the ruler of this cosmos. So he's the ruler of this type of thinking. He's the one who originated it. And in Ephesians 2, 2, Paul says that the Ephesian believers once walked according to the course of this cosmos, according to the prince of the power of the air, connecting the cosmos to Satan. The term prince in the power of the air is another term uh, for Satan. 
Now, when we look at satanic thinking, there's two basic elements. There is autonomy and there is antagonism. Autonomy refers to uh, everything that's related to self. It's related to independence. That word autonomy has to do with self-law. Man becomes a law unto himself and in our, our, our any creature becomes a law unto himself and rebels against God. And in that autonomy, we see the essence or core of arrogance, which is anything that affirms and establishes an, or emphasizes self. Self-absorption, self-indulgence, self-justification, self-deception. We recognize those as the arrogant skills. Self-reliance in a bad way. A self-reliance where you're so dependent upon yourself and asserting your own independence that you're no longer dependent upon God. You're either God-reliant or self-reliant in the scriptures, one or the other. And the only way we can be God-reliant is if we're trusting in the Lord. Uh, Self-assertion, we assert our own uh, ideas, our own opinions, our own values. It's just self, self, self. It's all self-absorption. That represents one aspect of cosmic thinking. The other is antagonism, because when we assert ourselves over against God, then we're going to become antagonistic to God, because we're going to say, I'm going to assert my ideas against God, and God, God's going to say, that's wrong. And then we're going to get mad at him, because he won't let us have our own way. And so antagonism is expressed hostility to the word of God, hostility to divine viewpoint or even establishment truth, hostility to Christians because they just represent God and the very fact that you've got a Christian having his presence in Congress is just absolutely anathema to a lot of uh, atheistic, uh, self-righteous unbelievers. They just hate the idea that somebody can be a Bible-believing Christian and have any say in anything there because ultimately they've rejected God. So there's hostility to anyone who stands for the absolute truth of the Word of God. So that's point number three. Then point number four is, thus the thinking of the world is juxtaposed in Scripture to the thinking of God. There is only one way. Jesus said, I am the truth. That means anything that disagrees with Jesus is not the truth. You're not left with another option. Jesus is either the truth or he's a liar. And uh, and so you have to be intellectually honest there. And if he's a liar, then he's the most deceptive person in all of human history. And he's leading billions of people uh, to their eternal death. So God's thinking is divine viewpoint. Man's thinking is human viewpoint. Fifth point, all systems of human thought, uh, except for the Bible, are grounded on these two things, arrogance and antagonism, or autonomy and antagonism. Now, the cosmic thinking, cosmic system, includes all unbelievers. They can't think any other way because they don't have divine truth. So no matter how moral they might be, no matter how much they borrow or steal ideas from Christianity, because think about it. If God created everything and everything runs the way God says it runs, then the only way you can have a measure of stability is to do things God's way. 
And whether they like it or not, they have to borrow from God uh, in order to make life work for themselves. So all unbelievers operate in the cosmic system and a lot of believers operate in the cosmic system because they don't know any biblical truth. This is what we see in Romans 12 too. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. The assumption there is that as a believer, you are already conformed to the world in your thinking from the minute you got saved because you haven't had any divine truth yet other than the gospel. So after you're saved, what do you do then? Well, you have to quit thinking like the world. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renovation or overhaul of your of your mind, of your thinking. Okay, now that's an important word there because the, uh, the idea there or the word that's in the Greek uh, relates to, as part of the, the semantic range of a word we're going to run into in a little while related to being like-minded. And we do this to prove that that uh, God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. In other words, we're out to prove something. We're to demonstrate something in our lives. That's part of our mission, is to demonstrate that what God says is true, that it's good and acceptable and perfect. A sixth thing is that sin and the sin nature produce cosmic thinking and are reinforced by it. So you have this uh, interplay, the sin nature thinks of ways to suppress truth and to organize its thought systems apart from, uh, apart from God, and that develops these, all these different philosophies and religions, but that in turn reinforces the sin nature. So you get this uh, codependent spiral between the, sin, the function of the sin nature and the world system. The world system often provides the philosophies and the re- religions and the rationalizations that we use to justify what makes us feel comfortable other than doing what God says the way God says to do it. So this is really an important point, that, that we see that codependency between cosmic thinking and the sin nature. Seventh point is that since God is truth and light and, and he is light and in him is no darkness, the opposite is true of Satan. He's the father of lies. He is he lives in darkness, even though he can manifest himself as an angel of light, he is in darkness. Jesus said it this way in John eight forty four. Uh, uh, another one of his statements where he's currying favor with the Pharisees, I'm being facetious. You are of your father the devil. He's talking to the religious leaders in Israel. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. It's either Jesus who's the truth or it's Satan who is the lie. When he speaks a lie, that is Satan, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So the juxtaposition is God is light, and in him there is no darkness, and Satan is a liar from the beginning. That's the beginning of human history. Eighth point, those who represent the world system, religious leaders, political leaders, Who knew? The way some people think about our political leaders, it's nice to have some people that we think are better than others, but none of them are really, uh, there's a few that are really trying to uh, 
uh, apply the word of God in their own spiritual life and in their political thinking. Religious leaders, political leaders, philosophers, the everyday person, they're all characterized by the sin nature. And if they're Christians, when they're characterized by their sin nature, then they are, uh, they are friends with the world. And the scripture says that those who are friends with the world are enemies of God. That's a pretty strong statement that we're one or the other. We're either letting the world shape our thinking, which makes us enemies of God, or we're letting the scripture shape our thinking. So the solution, point number nine, is the spiritual life that's given to us through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you. That's what he taught about church-age doctrine at the Upper Room Discourse. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. That no matter what's going on in the world around you, the hostility of the cosmic system is always going to be there. But in Jesus, and that would, uh, an application of that would be in the body of Christ functioning within the church that is walking by the Spirit, there should be tranquility. But it's not going to happen unless you're all walking by the Spirit. These things I've spoken to me that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You'll have adversity. You'll have hostility. You'll have rejection. You'll have difficulty because you're dealing with other sinners. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And when Jesus said I've overcome, he uses a perfect tense verse, which means it's completed action at that point. He's not overcoming the world in process. He's not going to overcome the world the next day when he goes to the cross. He has already overcome the world and defeated it. And that word for overcoming is the Greek word nikao, which means to be a victor. And that relates to us as believers becoming victors in our spiritual life and receiving special awards and rewards and inheritance blessings. Now, I'm bringing inheritance in here because last time, as we finished up in 1 Peter chapter chapter 3, verse 7, talking about uh, husbands and how they are to live with their wives and honor the wives, they are to treat them as heirs together of the grace of life. That refers to being being heirs of God, that first category of inheritance is true for every believer. Um, tonight in verse 9, we're going to see another reference to inheritance, that we are to obey God in all of these attributes so that we may inherit a blessing. So that, And that is talking about blessing in time as well as in eternity, and that's the other kind of blessing that comes as a result of spiritual growth and obedience. Romans 12.2 says we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's the only solution, to walk by the Spirit, to take in the Word of God and apply the Word of God and let our thinking be transformed. And then the last point in this introduction The cosmic system values power. It values self-sufficiency as opposed to God-dependency. It values self-assertion instead of asserting the truth of God's word and asserting the values and character qualities uh, that that God espouses. We've got a new game. When you get saved, there's new rules. 
You move from being an unbeliever and operating according to the rules of Satan and the rules of the cosmic system, the rules of your culture, to where you're now in a countercultural game and there's new rules. You're on a new team. We're on God's team. We're not on Satan's team anymore. And we function differently. We have a higher calling. We're not going to lower ourselves to the standards of others, no matter who they are, whether they're unbelievers or whether they're carnal believers. We're, we're going to take the high road. We're always going to operate on these qualities that are emphasized here. So before we get into the text itself, I have three points of just basic summary. As we look at this section, it sets us up for the same kind of situation that, that, as I said, David faced, where he's surrounded by Saul and Saul's army, and he's in a hostile environment. What Peter is doing is juxtaposing the Christian community as it should be, the church as an island, as an oasis of tranquility and peace and stability in contrast to the world. When we are out in the world, I hear so many different stories from people who are in petty little situations at their office or on their team at work or with other people that are vindictive, they're filled with revenge, they, uh, they're always out for themselves, they're totally self-absorbed, they're lazy, they're irresponsible, they take credit for other people's actions, all these kinds of things that take place in the world. When we come to be with other believers, those kinds of things should not characterize the body of Christ. That's what Paul, I mean, excuse me, that's what Peter's talking about here. So, he's, so his background, we have to remember, we're all members of the body of Christ. That happened the instant we trusted in Christ as Savior, and instantly we're part of that, part of that organism. Now, that doesn't mean that we've, our character has been changed. That's the process of spiritual growth. But what undergirds that is realizing the interdependency of every member of the body of Christ. We're members of one another. We're not just individuals. We're not a bunch of separate atoms just floating randomly in space. We are brought together into an organism, and we are members of one another. And that's the importance of the body of Christ, that when we face challenges in life, we face the hostility of the world, we face difficulties in our own personal life or our spiritual growth, we have a team that supports us. We have a team that comes together on the basis of the Word of God, not on the basis of this kind of pseudo-feel-good, let's-all-hold-hands-and-sing-kumbaya kind of emotional psychobabble nonsense you get, but a team that plays on the basis of the rules of the Word of God. Paul says in Romans 12.5, so we being many, that emphasizes our individual natures, we being many are one body in Christ. That's not just a a unity in Christ that is talking about a practical value on the on the ground of our interdependency we are individually members of one body of one another and that's important we're members of one another that's that's a different term we're not just on a it's not just that we play on the same team there's a more fundamental and foundational unity there and interconnectedness because we're in the body of Christ. 
In Ephesians 4.25, Paul is addressing the problem that creates disunity and fragmentation in a local body of Christ because of the deceptions that were going on there, apparently. He said, therefore, putting away lying, he says, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of one another. So that the truth should characterize our relationships with one another, not lying and deception that is characteristic in the unbelieving community. Second observation, therefore, we're to be a community that differs from the way the world does things. We don't do things the same way because we have a different playbook. So the church needs to be a refuge from the kinds of insults and competition and arrogance and hostility that comes from those outside the church. This was a problem in Ephesus. It's a problem in Corinth. It was a problem in Philippi, big problem in Philippi. And and um, uh, wherever there's a sinner, there's going to be a problem. That is because... They're not following the divine solution. But when we implement the divine solution, then there can be harmony and tranquility. Three, Peter's addressing a community to teach them how they are to address the various assaults that are coming from outside the church, from without, and by application from within. So he's focusing on the fact that they're living in a hostile environment but it also has application in case there's problems with other believers. Fourth, in order for the Christian community to be what God intended, then certain qualities should and must be present. Now, those qualities are summarized in different ways with different terms in different passages, but Peter uses five here in verse 8. They're translated this way in the King James, in the New King James, being of one mind, thinking the same thing, having compassion for one another, uh, love, uh, brotherly love, being tender-hearted and being courteous. Those are the five attributes. We'll talk about those in just a minute. Fifth, these flow out of a basic orientation to grace and humility. Without grace and humility, what is humility? It is submission to God's authority. God says, this is how you relate to people. And so you do it. It may not feel comfortable. It may not be what you like, but this is how you do it. And so that's, uh, that's humility and grace orientation. And that becomes the basis for authority orientation and submission. The fact is that Paul and Peter are not singling out. See, this is a problem we get in this war between the sexes mentality that have taken these passages where Paul talks about submission, wives being submissive to the husbands, and and um, P- Peter talks about this, and they they blow it out of proportion. The ultimate framework for this has got to be understood. Paul and Peter are not singling out either males or females for some sort of special browbeating, okay? He's not misogynist, and he's not mad at men either, okay? That's not the point. The fact is that he's applying to both the men and women that which should be true of every single believer, okay? And Peter, Paul starts off in Ephesians 
I think it's about Ephesians 5.27. He says, submit to one another. That's your first use of submit. It's It applies to every believer. What Peter, uh, Peter says here in verses 8 and 9 applies to every believer. What he said in 17 applies to every believer. He's just giving instances of it in between to slaves, to uh, to wives and to husbands it also applies to masters and children and so he's taking those same principles it's true for every believer so he's not picking on anybody jesus says i'll get to that in a minute okay so what we learn from all of this is that it's about god's plan that's the focus once we get saved it's about god's plan we're playing for the other team we're running to the other goal Okay, to put it in a football analogy. We're under a different rule book. It's about Jesus. It's about serving the Lord no matter what. It's no longer about me. When And this is a hard thing for us to learn. How many of us still struggle with the fact that when I'm explaining the gospel to somebody and they reject it, that we feel they're rejecting me? They're not rejecting me. They're rejecting God. They're rejecting Christ. But that's such a hindrance for most of us in giving the gospel because we don't want that rejection. Now, we get the uh, sort of the uh, superfluous overflow of that uh, directed towards us, but they're not rejecting me, just like Samuel. When Israel wanted a king, uh, God told Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. That's the real issue. They're They're not rejecting us. They're rejecting God. It's God's plan, it's Jesus that we're serving, and it's the mission that he gave us. And that's what everything is about. So it's not about our feelings, it's not about our wishes or our wants, our desires, because a lot of that comes out of our sin nature. A lot of that is our sin nature creates a comfort zone, and we want to stay in that comfort zone because of the deception of sin nature. And it would have been much more comfortable for Peter and the other disciples to stay in Jerusalem. What was Jesus, what was the last thing Jesus said? I want you to take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the world. What did they do? They stayed in their comfort zone. They camped out in Jerusalem. They lived in Jerusalem. They didn't go to Judea and Samaria. And so what did God do? God came in and he brought testing. He brought persecution he brought adversity and persecution in jerusalem so they had to leave see this is what happened you have a choice you can either leave your comfort zone out of your own volition and obedience to the lord or you can leave your your comfort zone because god's got a fly swatter after you and he's going to cause that trouble so you you've got an option do it god's way out of your own volition or do it god's way as a result of a little divine discipline so it's not about how we feel. It's not what we think. It's not about our privilege, our our, our uh, prerogatives. It is about what the Lord wants to accomplish the mission. As such, the Scripture says that we're to love our enemies. We're to love those who mistreat us and bless those who curse us. This is what Jesus says in Luke six twenty seven. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. That includes people who believe differently that that involves militant muslims that's a hard thing for a lot of us because not only are they a personal 
is that a personal issue, but it's a national issue because they have declared war on the West, even though the West is trying to ignore it. Uh, but we're to love our enemies. That doesn't mean we don't go to war against them. That's the, that's the tension we have. We're to love our enemies, and we're to do good to those uh, who hate us. We're to bless those who curse us. We're not to react in anger. We're not to react in resentment or bitterness. Uh, we are to be even more kind and generous. I read a testimony of a believer who was serving in the military, and he, as he was serving in one of his early assignments, probably in boot camp or one of the other training, training situations, um, he came under uh, assault from another, another soldier. He was, he, every night as they, and I've heard this from many, many guys here in the congregation when they were in, in boot camp and they were going through, through uh, basic training, every night these guys, believers, would take out their cassette player or something and they would spend time in the Word and pray. And, um, and, and they would focus on their biblical study and get that in every single day if they could. And uh, so that's what this soldier was doing. And he was always getting ridiculed by another guy in the barracks. And so one night as he was praying, all of a sudden he was hit in the side of the head with a muddy boot. So what do you do? What's your natural reaction? That's right. Let's go to Fifth City. Let's fight. Let's, let's, you know, you want to fight? Take him on. The next morning, the guy who threw the boot found the boot, clean, polished, spit shined, first class condition, boots lined up at, at the base of his bunk. See, he was blessed instead of cursed. As a result of that, according to this guy's testimony, several of the men in his, in his unit came to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the difference. Believers respond differently than unbelievers. We don't let the sin nature cause us to react that way. So we're to bless those who curse you, pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. Now that's not a pacifist verse. Dan Ingram wrote his master's thesis on this verse. What that means is if somebody insults you, just ignore it and move on. Uh, don't seek offense. Don't take offense uh, constantly because the issue isn't your feelings or whether you've been offended. The issue is the mission for Jesus Christ. First Peter 3.8, Peter summarizes this and he says, Finally, now as he's bringing this to a conclusion, talking about submission, explaining how to honor the people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king, he summarizes it in relation to all of you. He says, finally, all of you, every believer, this, is, this, this relates to, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, and be courteous. Now, these are five qualities that are expressed by five adjectives. If you uh, look at the verse in your English text, it says all, and you'll notice that of you be is in italics. That's because of you be isn't in the original. It's implied all, and then it just has all, same mind, and compassion 
for one another, not, and that's not even in the original, lo brotherly love, tenderhearted, and courteous. So the idea is the verb is left out. This happens a lot in Greek. When you are emphasizing something, you drop out the verb, it's implied, it's called an ellipsis, and the only thing that would make sense is a to-be verb here, which is how they've tr translated this, but it, it's translated as an imperative. It would have to be an imperative verb. This is a command. This isn't an option. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't something that uh, might work out for you someday, so give it a try. This is an order for every believer. Um, be like-minded, and that has the idea of being in harmony, being harmonious, uh, not having discord. Uh, sympathy is the second word, and that is pretty much based on a transliteration, but it has the idea of understanding the suffering of one another. The third is brotherly love, Philadelphus. Uh, which means where we get our name for our city, Philadelphia, which was named for the city of like name in, uh, in Asia Minor in Turkey, but it means to love one another and then to be kind-hearted to one another and courteous, which is completely wrong because the Greek word there is very important. It means to be humble toward one another. So let's, let's take these... Uh, let's take these apart uh, one by one. The first word is homophron, homophron. Now that's an interesting word because the root, the fron, the P-H-R-O-N, comes from the verb phroneo, which means to think, and not to emote, but to think. The H-O-M at the beginning, the H is, represents the rough breathing mark, is from the Greek word um, uh, hamas, which means the same, as opposed to heteros, which means something different. Okay, we get words like homogenized milk. The homo at the beginning of homogenized means everything is made the same. Okay, homosexual means the same sex. Uh, so homophron means to think the same. This is the only time this word is used. In fact, most of these words that are used here, I think three of the five, are only used this one time in all of the New Testament. But it's clear that it is a, a synonym for uh, other phrase that is more common, which is to uh, think the same thing or to be like-minded. Uh, so when we look at this particular word and we think about it, it reflects as... Um, Selwyn says in his well-known commentary on 1 Peter that it reflects a common heritage of faith and ethical tradition. So let's break that down a little bit. When he says it's a common heritage of faith, it's they all believe the same thing. You know, that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, one faith. We all believe the same thing. And, and in the Old Testament, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? If we don't have the same belief, then we can't be united. So we all have to submit to the teaching and believe what the Word of God says. So we have a, because we have a common heritage of faith, and then he says a common heritage of um, ethical tradition, what that means is we believe in the same values of right and wrong what is uh, correct and what is incorrect. And so this is the idea here. Because we have a common belief system, 
we have a common behavior system. We're all going to play according to the same rules and the same rule book that God has given us. Now, the problem is we all face the same three enemies, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the flesh represents the sin nature. And any of us as believers, when we stop walking by the Spirit, then the sin nature gets control. And that can cause all sorts of problems. That's what, what uh, Paul lists in Ephesians, uh, I mean Galatians 5.19 and following, the works of the flesh, which include strife and divisions and all kinds of disorder. But it's only by walking by the Spirit. That's how that section in Galatians starts. Walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Only by walking by the Spirit and letting our beliefs and actions be transformed by the uh, Word of God will the Spirit be able to produce the kind of unity and oneness within a local church that will exhibit the characteristics of Christ. That doesn't mean it's all going to be perfect. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have problems and issues between different members of the local church. But together we stand in unity on what we believe and our common uh, mentality of behavior, and then we stand against the world system. So that's what this like-mindedness is all about. And we find this a number of places in Scripture because this was a problem in churches in the ancient world as it is today. Romans 15:5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you, that's a grace idea, grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So the phrase according to in the Greek means according to a standard. We're of the same mind according to one standard. That's the only way we can have unity, and that's according to the thinking of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians thirteen eleven. Paul ends his uh, uh, second Corinthian epistle. Finally, brethren, rejoice be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded. This isn't some secondary idea. We are to be of the same mind toward, mindset toward everything. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, Philippians really has a lot to say about this. In Philippians 2.2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Think the same way. Be Don't be divided. Don't have conflicts between you. Uh, Philippians 2.5 says, Have this mentality, phreneo, same idea in yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. Then he addressed a problem in the congregation that was causing uh, a lot of waves outside of even uh, uh, Philippi. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in the same mind in the Lord. Any people who have personal problems, they need to uh, focus on being of the same mind in relation to or according to Christ Jesus, as Paul put it in Romans. Now, none of this can happen apart from walking by the Spirit and applying the Word of God in our life. So, first of all, be of one mind. Second, to have compassion for one another. And this is the uh, Greek word, sum pathes, which is obviously where we get our word sympathy. It's just transliterated or brought over into English. And it means to have... uh, an understanding of what other people are going through. Uh, It's not just patting them on the back or feeling sorry for them. It's caring about their needs and their joys. And as they are going through difficult circumstances, to be willing to uh, encourage them. Two verses illustrate this. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 
that we are to have, and this all flows from having relationships, knowing other people in the congregation, so that we, and that you can't know everybody the same level or the same depth. That's impossible. But having some intimate relationships with different people where you can encourage them and strengthen them. When they go through good times, we rejoice with them. When they go through hard times, we weep with them. In 1 Corinthians 12, 26, Paul says, If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. It's not just a matter of... See, see some people get so caught up with privacy that, that they don't want anybody else in the congregation to know that they're going through anything. I don't think that fits with this verse. How can if one member is suffering, the whole body suffer if nobody knows about it? Because there, there's a an interdependency within the body of Christ. And that doesn't mean you go around and you tell everybody about every hangnail and, and uh, paper cut and everything that goes on in life. But we're talking about the difficulties that people face when, when somebody loses their job, uh, when they go through unemployment, when they're facing a medical crisis, when... Uh, there's a loss of a loved one when there are other other significant issues in life. We don't want to burn people with the non-essentials. Uh, we, but we care about each other. Then we come to the third example, the third adjective. We have brotherly love. This is the word philadelphos, and it means to love someone in the family. And because it's using the word that philos, which comes from the verb phileo, it's not talking like like agape. The difference between agape and phileo, their their meanings can overlap, but the distinction is that phileo indicates a more intimate love, not a more emotional love, but a more intimate love. You know the other person. There's there's a relationship there. So so it's a more intimate. Uh, involvement with someone else. We're to love one another. It's not just at hands uh, or at arm's length. We are to love one another. Some people make it more difficult to do that, and I understand that. It, it, some people are very, very difficult. Some people, um, you know, we've had some folks in this congregation, I've had folks in every congregation, that that they're just make it difficult socially for anybody uh, to be close to them. And that's more their problem than anybody else. But we all run into that, and we try to, you know, we pray. When, you know, one of the things I learned years ago, when I was a counselor in my first year at Campanile, I think it was about the fourth camp of the summer. We had one more after that to go, and I had been, because of, uh, my turnage had, had uh, a brain tumor, I had gotten picked at the last minute to also run all the canoe trips that summer. So I was like in a cabin counselor one week and then on a canoe trip the next week and then a cabin counselor. And I was tired. And I was tired of some little kids that were somewhat of discipline problems. And it was a Sunday afternoon and the bus was going to get there in a couple of hours. And I was worn out and I was laying on my bunk and I said, I need to just pray about my attitude because my attitude just really stinks. And I prayed about it, that the Lord would change my attitude. And I fell asleep, slept for about 30 minutes. And when I woke up, I was refreshed. My attitude had changed. And I learned a lesson there that as I face crises in life, the issue, and I don't want to do what God wants me to do, 
uh, I need to pray that God will help change my mind. The Holy Spirit would, would help transform my thinking so that I can apply what I know I ought to apply willingly and happily, uh, even though it may not be exactly what I want to do. Uh, some years after that, not long, I was teaching an in-school suspension class with a bunch of snotty-nosed middle schoolers, junior high kids, and nothing can be worse than a bunch of of juvenile delinquents in a in a um, uh, you know in school suspension class, and there were many mornings I woke up and the last thing I wanted to do was get in the car and drive to school and face these these little brats because they really were they were just incorrigible, and they would they they couldn't stick to the rules of the school long enough to get out after three days they would just uh, there was one girl that was just you know just lovely. And she was there for over 65 days. I mean, she didn't care. Her parents didn't care. And, and she was just, uh, you know, just absolutely hostile to everything. And the uh, last thing I wanted to do was face that. But you know, I would pray about it, and God would change my attitude. So that's important because this doesn't, none of this comes naturally. If you think this is impossible, guess what? It is. Only God, the Holy Spirit. Just remember You've heard it all your lives. The spiritual life isn't difficult. It's impossible. You can't do it on your own. It is a product of God the Holy Spirit and your willingness to walk by the Spirit. Loving one another, John, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. Not that all men will know you're, my, you're believers, but they, they, you are learning the word of God and applying it in your life if you have love for one another. Now, this is repeated. This command to love one another is repeated at least 10 more times in the New Testament. In John alone, in John fifteen twelve, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. In John fifteen seventeen, these things I command you that you love one another. Paul in Romans thirteen eight, oh no, no one anything except to love one another. In First Thessalonians four nine, you are taught by God to love one another. In First Peter one twenty two, what we've already seen so far, we're to love one another fervently with a pure heart. We're to love the brothers in in verse. Um, uh, love the brotherhood in two seventeen, and First John three eleven. 11 we are to, we should love one another, and First John three twenty three uh, that we should believe on the name of His Son Jesus Christ and love one another as He gave us commandment. And First John four seven, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And that's talking about spiritual growth, not just automatic from salvation. 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And 1 John 4.12, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. That's fellowship. On and on and on. Now, the fourth word is to be tenderhearted. And this is the word oisplachnos. And the EU indicates doing something well or good or beneficial towards others. And splachnos usually related to mercy or compassion. So it's an action type of noun where you are doing something merciful to help others in a difficult situation. Believers are challenged to be compassionate to those who are enduring difficulty in many places. Philippians 2, which is 
a major theme in Philippians is this idea of unity in the body and and um, being like-minded. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, and there is, if any comfort of love, and there is, if any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is, if any affection and mercy, that's the idea, and there is. Colossians 3.12, is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, same idea. And then the last word is to being, being humble. Now, I'll make this really brief. A lot I could say about this. Humility is one of those words that changed its meaning because of the teaching of Christ. A lot of words change their meaning over time. In the Middle Ages, Middle English, it was a real insult for somebody to say that you were nice. I actually remember being in a teen Bible class when I was about 15 years old, and half the Bible class was on the word nice that it was a word you should never use. I don't know about that, but its original meaning was to be stupid or ignorant. It wasn't until the 16th century that it began to change its meaning and to have the idea of being something positive, something that was uh, appropriate or something that was attractive. And and that's based on... uh, what the Oxford English Dictionary gives as the background for that. Language meaning changes, it, language meanings change with language. Uh, Tapinophron has the idea, the last word F-R-O-N, we've already seen that in the first one, it has to do with thinking, thinking of yourself as being uh, lowly. And the me- basic meaning was to be low. It, came, it ta- originally talked about people who were on the dregs of society, the lowest of the lower socioeconomics uh, in society. It was the the bottom of the rung, and it was always an insult. Jesus came along and said, Christians are supposed to be humble. That really didn't sound right to a lot of people because up to Jesus, this is a negative word. It is a bad word. Uh, in fact, in Greek culture, you were to be self-assertive. You were to assert your own rights. You weren't supposed to give up your rights. But see, you're compared to a slave. Jesus came a- as a slave, as a servant to God. So he gave up his uh, uh, rights. He said, it's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's not about how I feel. I don't want to go to the cross. I'm sweating blood. Father, let this cup pass from me. But Jesus focused on the mission and uh, he went with the joy set before him, joyfully. So it's not just a matter of doing what God says, but not doing it grudgingly, but doing it uh, out of a genuine uh, response of obedience. And then next time we'll come back and talk about three nine, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Now that's really hard. Somebody insults us, we want to throw it back at them. But what did Jesus do? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. What we do is we turn it over to God in the Supreme Court of Heaven, let him handle it, and we just move on like nothing ever happened and let God take care of it. He is the God, he is the judge of all things, and he's going to do the right thing. And then we'll get into how Peter is using Psalm 34 here. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. Help us to apply them. Help us to recognize that all these characteristics can't be just 
manufactured on our own, but we have to be walking by the Spirit. We have to be um, taking in the Word, thinking it through, applying it, praying that you would manifest these characteristics in our lives, and when it's difficult, that you will uh, help us to do what we need to do and what the right thing is. Give us the work in us, as Paul says, both to will and to do your good pleasure. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.